This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hey, this is Morgan. Thank you, everyone, who has sent in a review and let us know how you like the show. We appreciate it. We are taking your reviews and questions through the end of the week. So don't forget to do so. And we may have a special show for you coming up. Thanks. You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee. I'm an associate digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I am joined by the great Ted Olson. Hi, Morgan. Congratulations on being digital media producer now. That's awesome. Thank you. And I think I'm the first one that we've ever had in CT Magazine, which is also cool. That is cool. That's that's definitely true. Yeah, right? It's kind of a sign of the times, I think. Yeah. Ted, what is your awesome title? We're pivoting to audio. No, we're not pivoting to audio. <laughs> we, we have audio. Expanding. Though. Yes, we're expanding. expanding. Uh, my title is editorial director, and I am sitting in here once again for Mark Galley, who is at the Christianity Today board meeting, where they are governing our nonprofit very well. Awesome. So if you're missing Mark, know that he's gone for a good cause. Who is our guest for today? Our guest is Karen Swallow Pryor, uh, frequent Christianity Today contributor. Uh, I'm thrilled to have her on once again. This is uh, not her first time on the show, but we definitely wanted her on today. She is the author of multiple books. Uh, coming up is one called On Reading Well. She has a chapter and a book that will be out in January uh, that's very good, worth a read, called Still Evangelical, uh, 10 Insiders Reconsider Political, Social, and theological meaning. Her main gig is as professor of English at uh, Liberty University, and she is one of the uh, wisest users and commentators on social media that I know of, so I am thrilled that she's here. Karen, when would you say that you became kind of a Twitter star? Oh, is that what I am? What? Well, you have more <laughs> followers is... than most editors at CT, so I think well, there's something going on there. It's such a low claim to fame, you know? <laughs> <laughs> You know, it really is uh, has been very organically evolving over time. I've been on Twitter since 2009, I believe. Um, and so it's just uh, an accumulation of interactions and uh, engagements. And um, yeah, I don't really know well, how that happened. I will say that this is something that I think is true about your social media presence. You often find yourself in the middle of controversy, but then when controversy comes, you just continue the conversation. Yeah, Uh Karen is like the quick to listen of of Twitter. It's like she's she's there in whatever the hot issue of the day is, but she's like actually helping people think through things. So that's that's what I like. Oh well, that is that is my goal, and I, I if I succeed half of the time, then that's that's great. I'm I'm very thankful for that. All right, and you'll share your Twitter information with us at the end of the show. So, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. All right, let's get into our topic for today. As most of you know, we're in the midst of a heavy season of public revelations and accusations of sexual harassment and assault. But amid the claims against Hollywood celebrities public officials, and other men in power. Few claims have received as much attention as those against Senate candidate Roy Moore. In the past week, five women have alleged that Moore acted inappropriately towards them when they were teenagers and he was in his mid-30s. 
Two of the women alleged that Moore sexually assaulted them as minors. The accusations are top political news because the race for Alabama's vacated Senate seat has been a close one. But it's top religious news as well because Moore has been a prominent celebrity in religious right circles for a number of years, frequently appearing on Christian radio shows and at conservative Christian political rallies. He gained prominence in the 90s as the Ten Commandments judge when his use of a Ten Commandments plaque and courtroom prayers were challenged by the ACLU. And he's also been very outspoken about his beliefs against same-sex marriage, which ended up leading to him resigning from his position as chief justice of Alabama earlier this year. The accusations that Moore has violated multiple commandments and acted lewdly towards teen girls has brought a lot of criticism from evangelical leaders. But others are sticking with Moore. You may have seen last week that one Alabama politician famously defended Moore's actions by comparing them to Mary and Joseph. Evangelist Franklin Graham tweeted that he was praying for Moore and his family. Liberty President Jerry Fowler Jr. said he believed Moore's denial. According to a poll earlier this week, Moore's support among evangelicals has dropped from 63% to 57% after these allegations have come out. That's uh, evangelicals in Alabama, right? Correct. But nearly 40% of evangelicals said that the allegations made them more likely to vote for more. The poll data ignited outrage from a lot of evangelicals nationwide, inspiring a fresh round of shock of how differently views, attitudes, and expectations can be under the large umbrella we called evangelicalism. All right, we have tons of stuff to get into today, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Before we do that, once again, I just remind everyone that the best way to show your love for this podcast and make it happen is to subscribe to Christianity Today magazine. And if you subscribe now, you will get our December issue. So let's talk about our December issue for a second. There is pictures of money on the cover of our December issue. Yeah, that's one of the biggest conversations right now in uh, development circles, especially in the Christian side. Uh, But, you know, whoever is trying to help uh, the global uh, poor and the developing countries about whether whether just giving people money is maybe the best way to go instead of, you know, doing goods and services. You know, would it even be better to, to give money than to dig wells? Would it be better to give money than to buy people animals? Would it be better uh, to give money uh, than to do some of the things that are we've been doing for, for decades? So uh, we take a look at that from a Christian economist point of view. Uh, we look at the research. We look at the ministries that are shifting to more cash giving. It's a pretty interesting thing, especially, you know, as Christmas is coming and we're, <laughs> we're all looking at, hey, what do we give? And is, should I just give this person? a gift card, or maybe I should just give him a $50 bill. Who knows? Ted, did you find yourself changing your mind at all when you read this piece? Um, A little bit. A little bit. To me, you know, the one, one of the things the article does not get into is, well, it does a little bit. What it does to the giver, you know, I think there's a reason why I—I I think the reason why I don't want to just give people you know, in, on an interpersonal level, uh, cash money is because of how it would make me feel, not necessarily how it would make them feel. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious about that. It made me think a lot about why I'm much more, um, uh, I would much rather give someone something tangible than, than, a, than a money. Well, I have lots of thoughts on this, but because we're not doing a quick to listen episode, at least right now, about this particular topic. Yeah. 
I'm going to save them until then. But if you'd like to read this article, this article will be available on our website in a couple of weeks. And the print issue, again, will be in your mailboxes if you choose to subscribe. Also, within a couple of weeks, you can do so by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. And again, we know that many of you have subscribed to the magazine because you listen to the podcast and we are so grateful for it. All right, Ted, as you know, the next thing that we do is often when we give our immediate knee-jerk visceral reactions to the news. So take it away. Complicated. You know, it's it, it comes amid uh, a lot of revelations. And I think the flood of revelations, for me, more was a particularly gross one, but it was not the most surprising one. I think for me, uh, and I'm writing about this in a separate article uh, for CT, the overwhelming feeling of the kind of Me Too uh, hashtag has been a reminder and a bit of an eye-opener to the the ubiquity of uh, sexual assault. And so uh, I got really frustrated with some of the responses to Roy Moore, some of the, apart from provability, just the, well, even if he did do it, uh, yada, 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 hitting on mid-teenagers is, you know, just something that happened back in the day. You know, hey, look at Elvis. Hey, look at uh, Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, not re- People not realizing, like, yeah, yes, those were scandalous back in the day, too. And then also just the con- conflation of, oh, he, you know, uh, wanted to date teenagers and, like, no, but... Also, some of these cases are actual sexual assault allegations and uh, people just saying, oh, you know, what's so bad about hitting on um, teenagers? It just grossed me out and made me so angry. So, yeah, a lot of responses uh, that were all over the place, which which kind of seemed like uh, how Twitter was as well. I kind of remember hearing about Bill Clinton when I was seven or eight. Mostly I remember my parents shielding me from that story. And only getting some of the things that trickled out. But I do remember people being very mad about what happened there. And also feeling that as growing up in a family that was mad about those things, that part of the reason we were mad was because it violated our beliefs on morality. Yeah. So I'm never happy when I see people who may have championed the morality that I grew up with then seem to make it seem like it's person specific. <laughs> morality or partisan specific morality. And I think that that's where the news about Roy Moore feels and lands differently to me than when I'm hearing news by other folks in Hollywood who I never was under the impression that they shared those same things. Yeah. Some of the responses that got my dander up the most were the ones that said, even if more evidence comes out on this, I would probably still vote for Roy Moore because uh, we can't give up that uh, Senate seat. Boy, that 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 made me pretty livid. And then I have to say that was tempered a little bit shortly thereafter by being like, okay, I never, heard, you know, some of these people that are that they're, that are being quoted saying some of these things, I had never heard of before this week. So I do get a little bit nervous about like, let's go find super outrage people saying super outrageous quotes and and get super out- outraged about them. Um, sure. Although in this case, I don't think that either of us closely follows Alabama politics. Just saying. Darn, darn tootin'. That is that is truly accurate. But then, you know, I, I guess it's as I saw more people saying, oh, evangelicals believe X, Y and Z, because uh, here's an Alabama politician who said X. You know, I had a defensive uh, response to that for sure. Karen, we are so excited to hear what you're going to say on the show. So. Let's speak a little bit more generally right now. Well, I feel like I feel like I can't follow up on darn tootin'. <laughs> <laughs> 
I feel like I have nothing better to say than that. But um, no, uh, this is obviously a very, very distressing story for you know for America, but even more so, I think, for the church because oh, so many of our of our values and principles are clashing here, and so many of our fault lines and hypocrisies are being exposed here, along with other cases over the past year. And so, you know, I, I think it is important to just acknowledge the reality and the facts as they exist right now, which are that uh, we do not know whether or not Roy Moore is guilty. I think there is compelling evidence of that he has done wrong, um, according to these allegations. They're, they are compelling. Evidence is not proof, of course. But so here we are um, in a situation where we do not know the truth of the matter. We may likely never know the truth because, as I understand it, the statute of limitations rules out any kind of court proceedings around um, these incidents. But we still have to grapple with what we do know, and particularly Alabama voters have to make decisions, and then the rest of us have to make decisions as Washington and our own representatives uh, weigh in. And so, you know, as I as I posted on on my uh, Facebook the other day in a comment that's drawn, I don't know, someone told me it's over 600 comments now. It's been quite a lively discussion. You know, I just said, we don't know if, I put it in general terms, but in general, when we don't know if someone is guilty, they are presumed innocent in law. However, even court processes, when someone is still not found guilty or innocent because the investigation has taken place, we often put th- those people have some limitations. They might be jailed until trial. They might be released on bond until trial. Or even in the case of police officers who um, who have been accused of wrongdoing, they are put on administrative leave while an investigation takes place. And all this is because not because the person has been found guilty, but because there's a possibility that they are guilty. We have to exercise wisdom and be practical to make sure that no more harm is done. So I would say we find ourselves in a similar situation. We do not know for sure if Judge Moore or Roy Moore is guilty, but if there is a possibility that he is, and of course there is, we need to be very wise and careful not to allow any more harm to take place. And it certainly would be harmful, I think, to elect to to office anyone who might be guilty of child molestation and sexual assault. That's my position on it. So so specifics of this particular case aside, you know, since we're in the midst of hearing so many of these stories, Karen, do you feel like you personally tend to get more upset when you hear the details of the alleged abuse or when you hear people defending the people who are alleged to be abusers? Well, in terms of, I mean, as you know, because I've written for CT on on sexual abuse, I did a a piece uh, earlier this year, actually, um, where I interviewed um, dozens and dozens and dozens of women who were victims of sexual assault and um, and compiled sort of a list of the things that they want people to know. And one of the things that they say over and over again is simply that we our first response needs to be to believe them, to hear them, to not just assume that these are false accusations. And what really has I mean, I've, I knew this before because we keep seeing these revelations more and more every day. But in this case with Roy Moore, it's even more painfully evident that far too many people's initial response is to assume that the accusations are false. And that tells us 
so much about where we are and, and, and the fact that people do not have or are denying the reality that most women grow up and live their lives being harassed, if not assaulted, being propositioned, being pursued inappropriately. I, I, almost every woman I know has, including myself, has had something like that happen to them, even if it's not. This is just the world that we grow up in. And I'm just incredulous that people do not recognize that. And then, of course, when you throw in uh, political partisanship and important issues like pro-life legislation, our confirmation bias just strengthens and deepens. We don't want, you know, we don't want to risk those other things that are important to us. So we just, I guess, just lean into our own biases and, and deny the facts that are in front of us. And so for me, that's the most upsetting thing because Christians who believe in truth with a capital T, I mean, I'm seeing Christians in my social media say, well, we, we, we can never really know the truth or, oh, it's, 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 these stories are conflicting and, and we might not know everything, but we do believe in truth. So we should be in pursuit of the truth and we should be weighing the evidence. Even as we acknowledge that you know, there are, are contradictions, we should still understand that there is a truth and we, and we should want to know what the truth is. If not even in this situation, the truth of the reality that this kind of thing happens far, far, far more than many people are willing to admit. That's the reality we have to face. You know, the Gospel Coalition this week uh, published an article uh, highlighting uh, Paul's mandate in First Timothy 5, where Paul says, do not admit a charge against an elder except in the uh, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, as for those who persistence in rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. As I said, it's always good to reference relevant scripture, but uh, that uh, passage, uh, you know, in, in the midst of kind of uh, the, the more thing and, and, and some a lot of the Me Too stories, I'm wrestling with how do we follow Paul's command to Timothy while acknowledging that, you know, most of this abuse happens without the presence of witnesses and that most of this uh, abuse happens in kind of a... Uh, uh, not just a sexual context, but in definitely a power context where uh, an elder, and this is a time about abuse in the church, but you know, similar things are going to happen outside the church, uh, where an elder can very easily uh, create a, a situation where there would not be witnesses uh, to, to, the, to the abuse or to the uh, uh, harassment. So I would say in the first of all, in the, in the present case, the initial story by the Washington Post that, that investigated and uncovered this included 30 corroborating witnesses um, to the four women. So just to put that out there. Right, right, yeah. In more general terms, because as you said, yes, these are the kinds of crimes that are most likely almost always going to be committed with no witnesses. So in the long term, what we really have to do as a church is to, again, be more aware of how rampant this kind of thing is so that we open up the doors of communication proactively with women, with girls, and create a climate in which they, women and girls, know that they can go to someone immediately and should go to someone immediately so that more witnesses can be drawn in and obviously so that abuse can be ended. So that, of course, is long term. Short term, um, I think, I think oftentimes what does happen is what we're seeing happen in the Roy Moore case is that there are people who knew something or suspected something or, you know, there was a red flag raised. But a single instance is never enough to speak up. And once one person speaks up, well, this is what happens in the Harvey Weinstein um, and the Hollywood scandal still unfolding, 
is that when one person speaks up, other people feel they feel freer to share what happened to them. I mean, we often just don't trust ourselves or trust our instincts, especially if it's something intangible or or, or that we blame ourselves for or, or second guess ourselves. Um, and so then an accumulation of evidence rolls in and I, you know, I think Hollywood, you know, I don't want to be the one to defend Hollywood, but it seems like they have, their reactions have been swifter and more severe, uh, than we are seeing or tend to see in the church to our shame. Do you see that as something to do with our faith itself, Karen, or, or where are you kind of thinking that that's coming from? That's a good question. I mean, of course, for Hollywood, they have dollars and cents to be concerned with. And so they may just take a gamble and say it's better to cancel this film or this show uh, because we'll get more repercussions if we don't. You know, that's looking at it a little bit more cynically. And of course, in the church, we have um, forgiveness. So we can't respond exactly the way that Hollywood did and we shouldn't. But we still, I mean, we do believe in human depravity. <laughs> and we do believe in uh, injustice and uh, righteousness. And so we should be wanting to deal with these things much more rigorously and uh, effectively than I think that we have. So I'm, I'm particularly just wanting to get your thoughts on proper responses, specifically when it's within the body of Christ and specifically when we are kind of viewing the, you know, again, egregious alleged actions by someone who is a Christian and noticing that those people who are lining up also share that faith. And what is the response that we should kind of strive to as as Christians who are who are viewing um, or witnessing this play out? Well, of course, there are a lot of normal, natural responses from anger to sadness and even guilt and shame. I mean, I'll just sort of go through some of those uh, from you know, my own personal processing and experience. You know, there are things that I have done in my past, um, not as bad as these, but things I've done in my past that I, that were wrong and that I'm ashamed of and that I am guilty of and that I would not want splashed on the front page, pages of the national news. And, um, I think we, most of us could say the same thing. And so there is a sense in which as Christians, we need to understand that we are all guilty and we are all have things that we are ashamed of and we're united in that. And so there's a sense of me that feels that kind of compassion for Roy Moore if he did something so horrible in the past that he now feels guilty and ashamed of. But the thing is, the problem is that I don't see in his responses any, any guilt or shame. Even, and even if he's innocent, if he's innocent, I would, I would want to see more sadness and lamentation and humility on his part because these are very, very serious charges. And if, if I were accused of something so horrible, I would feel very sad and very humble. And I don't, I don't see that. So, so we can also judge someone based on not just the things we don't know about their past, but how they respond to accusations. I think that's a fair assessment we can make. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. I also wondered too about our own kind of hard-heartedness when we see other people with hard hearts. So at least for me, I have to actively fight the temptation to feel more jaded and frustrated and wanting to write off particular people when they don't respond with contrition. How how do we respond shrewdly and smartly and you know, intelligently to the information that's available to us without just making general assumptions about the patriarchy in Christianity or how terrible men are or how power always tries to protect power. Well, one of the things that I think that we need to do is, as I said, we need to believe women and be proactive and and reactive properly when they come forward with these stories. But if this problem is as prevalent as I think all of us agree that it is, then there are many men and supporting women out there who have, if not done these sorts of things, um, and, and I, or, you know, just any kind of sexual harassment or impropriety, um, or supported it. And if we're going to change it, then we need to create a space for people to come forward and confess and make things right. And I'm not talking about something really, really dramatic, but think of all the men, all the quiet men sitting back, back there watching this unfold and thinking about the times that they catcalled a woman, or the times that they maybe propositioned a woman, or pressured a woman. These are much less severe kinds of sexual misconduct, but yet they need to be repented of. And the church needs to create a climate in which men and women know that they can confess and repent and be restored. And I'm afraid one of the things I fear in these stories is that those of us who are guilty of all these lesser sins are being pushed further and further into retreat and protectiveness and defensiveness. And that's the kind of thing that only fosters more of the same. You know, there's a place for men to perhaps publicly confess their complicity or their participation. So in order to set an example of how to repent and be restored. So I think that there, I think we need to ask men to do this in a more public, humble, constructive, conciliatory, and hopefully culture-changing way. Also, amidst all of these controversies, the church should be the one making space for people to come forward. And I'm not talking about forcing victims to forgive uh, their victimizers um, on command, you know, because that's, that's another form of abuse. But I'm talking about the church creating a space for people who truly are repentant to repent and be restored. You know, I've been in a number of church men's groups where uh, there are that or similar confessions and discussions where you will you will hear men kind of talk about treating women object uh, as object, uh, especially you know when the spirit of conviction you know uh, comes. You know, it's usually one person starts the conversation and then a few other uh, join in. But again, that's that's generally where where I've seen that done has been in a pretty small setting of uh, of just men. I don't know of any case where that really has been. Uh, carried over into a larger congregation. I'm wondering after this confession comes where accountability 
outcomes then? And also what, yeah, what mechanisms for making sure that behavior does not continue are there? Ted and I talked yesterday about how oftentimes this is a pattern of behavior that people have exhibited over the course of their life. And clearly confessing it had some really healthy things and you can hope that someone can get help, but it does make me wonder what that help is going to look like and how it's not just going to continue to be perpetuated after that, now that everyone is aware. That's a question that's true of any kind of sin. Um, and I think that when it comes to sexual sin, I think I think most of that is not publicly confessed. So I think that it really tends to be other kinds of sins like anger or pride or and so forth. I mean, it was certain we all we don't need to name names, but we've seen people pastors and leaders in the public eye who confess and fall and rise again and confess and fall and rise again. And they're, you know, they're, they're, I think the accountability comes from a healthy church. And right now it's clear we're, we're not very healthy because we're simply, our, our values are turned upside down and, and we, we're willing to do the wrong thing, uh, in order to achieve a right goal rather than, than trust God. Yeah, we've got a lot of work to do. <laughs> There's just, uh, a lot of, um, Discussion about you know sanct- the the process of sanctification in the church. What what right expectations are? Man, even here at CT, we have a lot of conversations uh, when when there is uh, you know about sin in the church. About what what are the expectations we can have when you have a church that you know a is full of people who are new to the faith, who are kind of um, newly converts, trying to live a different life or trying to understand what Jesus is really calling them to, and then you have people who are lifelong Christians with. Uh, strong devotional lives who you find have these uh, very serious besetting sins, that in some ways that can be very disillusioning uh, as someone in the Church when you find out that someone in the Church that uh, you know that they have an active uh, devotional life, you know that they're reading their Bibles, that they're great Scripture memorizers, you know that they have strong prayer lives, but they have they have often, uh, you know, when you when you find out about one of these folks's uh, destructive, besetting sins, it can be it can be pretty demoralizing. You know, as much as I may be able to uh, quote, uh, "For all have all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God," uh, and as much as I may be informed by Luther's uh, uh, view that we are we are beggars, uh, you know, even even after uh, conversion, there is just something just so sad when you when you just see sin. I mean, there's just something deeply sad about that. Part of me is just wondering where to put those feelings, because sometimes it comes out as anger, um, especially if there's a lot of uh, attempt to justify behavior, uh, and sometimes it just comes out as uh, disillusionment. You know, you see this a lot right now on, fa- on Twitter and Facebook right now, a lot of people saying, well, if this is evangelicalism, I'm not in it anymore. Yeah, well, maybe, Ted, you can just give us where you've landed briefly on this, since clearly you still work for an evangelical publication, and you've also been doing journalism in this place for a long time. Yeah, I wrote an editorial about this a couple years ago uh, called If You See Something, Say Something, where I talked about um, I went through a pretty dark period. I was in the news section, and uh, I literally went through a period where for an unbroken month every day there was some Christian leader, uh, some (laughs) new allegation about some new Christian leader. It was pretty destructive to my uh, uh, spiritual life. Yeah, so I did did go get some help with that, but the reality of of sin in the Church, the reality of sin, sin in my own life, the reality of sin in kind of spiritual heroes, I don't, I don't want to lose the, <laughs> the, uh, the sense of being somewhat deeply saddened by that. It's not as debilitating as it was for a bit, but I don't, I, I don't want it to not throw me off kilter. Sorry for all the 
negatives there. But you know, I want it to keep uh, surprising me to some to some degree. I do want to. I do need to keep reminding myself um, that God's grace and God's redemption and God God is bigger uh, than those things. That sin is uh, awful. Uh, and that and that God uh, God works through it because I also have seen some amazing stories of, of transformation. And then the other thing for me where I've come through it is to see the work of CT in specific because that's where I am. But also what I'm seeing right now on social media, what I'm seeing in various and sundry places is uh, God God's got a pretty good. Uh, winnowing fork. He goes through these periods where he uh, he he extends grace to us and gives us an opportunity to repent. And then there just seems to be these periods where you know it's like the controlled fires they have around here sometimes, where you know you have a lot of the uh, the weeds grow for a long time. And he says, okay, now it's time for the controlled burn. And he just burns a lot down uh, all at once and gives us an opportunity to see how destructive this can be, and to see that as a grace. I mean, I think God is always as gentle as he needs to be, but sometimes that, sometimes as gentle as he needs to be is incredibly painful. You know, here we are in, in the history of this country, um, what, 250 years later or something, and, you know, rooted in Puritanism, refined by Victorianism, and we have this sense that, you know, we've had a good ride in a pretty morally upright and, and, and <laughs> seemingly pure moral climate in this country. But we find ourselves today more like, I think, in a culture more like that of the first century church. You know, we've got, and, and this, having this longer view of history and this larger context, I think, can be encouraging to us when we remind ourselves that Paul had to write a letter to the church at Corinth about the incest in the congregation and tell them, no, this is not acceptable. You know, we're, we're in a similar situation where our sexual immorality is so rampant and we're, it's, 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 we're, our culture is so broken, um, that it's much more like ancient Greece and Rome, which was very, um, sexually wanton. And there's nothing new under the sun. So we're, we're in a place in America that's much closer to this ancient culture than the one that we've enjoyed perhaps in a number of ways in the past couple of hundred years, which of course had its own other other problems and issues. And so Paul has words for those Christ, those early Christians that are words for us today, and it should remind us that the church has always been broken, and we're always starting over, I think, and um, always in need of the Lord. I think one thing that's been great about working here at CT is that we do our best to fight back against the idea of Christian celebrities. So clearly there are people in our history and culture who have bigger name recognition than other people, but we would never necessarily want someone to be famous for being a Christian, if that makes sense. And it's just very convicting to think about that a lot of times because sometimes I definitely know that I have still had what I would consider Christian celebrities in my own walk. And then inevitably, when they disappoint me in some way or another, it becomes easy to burn out on faith. And I've unfortunately let those people kind of define what I see as Christianity lived out. I think that it has just been extremely powerful. I've brought this up multiple times on the podcast this year, but to just read through our Christian history archives. And I think we have some really good records in there of, again, people who were not necessarily the abusers, but the abused themselves or people who were the victims or people who were marginalized traditionally and watching them find and grapple with faith and decide to still claim Jesus at the end of the day has been very refreshing during during a time where it can feel very frustrating to deem power. Right, right. We need to keep our 
keep the, the cloud of witnesses in mind, not the celebrity of the moment. For me, the discouraging part is always, I, I tend to get much more upset about the people I see as enabling the uh, the sin. There's plenty of anger to go around, but definitely the people who know when something uh, egregious is happening and uh, just kind of cross their fingers and hope that uh, God reveals it in some way other than them. And that kind of drives me crazy. I do my part at CT to help people see that as something that needs repentance as well. But I am curious, uh, you mentioned, you know, Paul of the Corinthians, and Paul has a number of these places where he does talk about uh, expulsion. You know, it's like if people are unrepentant, if people are not dealing with the sin in their lives, like you, you need to distance the church from those folks. That to me, especially, uh, my family is great. I'm going, uh, I'm going to be hosting family for Thanksgiving, but I know that a lot of people over Thanksgiving can have really difficult family get together times. And I'm just thinking about this as, you know, in terms of family where in the church, there's these moments where, where, where you have uh, family deeply disappointing you. Rage is more difficult when you when it's directed towards a, a, a family member, and I, I think I'm seeing that more as people are saying, you know, I'm 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 leaving the church, or I'm gonna I'm gonna find a new church. I don't want to identify as evangelical anymore, or in some cases, they're looking for just entirely new theologies because they feel like biblical conversionist evangelicalism is letting them down uh, with with uh, these stories of uh, moral failure. And I'm just wondering how to counsel people who are feeling deeply betrayed by essentially family members, uh, especially family members that in one sense they're going to be spending eternity with, but that they really in some ways <laughs> do not want to. Well, a couple of things. I mean, um, in terms of the church family, no matter where we go, we're going to be disappointed by churches and and members of that of that church family. And so I think we really need to make these decisions for church membership and denominational affiliation based on doctrine and teaching um, and what seems to us to be right. I mean, I know my sensibilities lead toward high liturgy and and um, certain kind of music and style of worship. And, and when I try to convert to that particular to a denomination that has that, I just the doctrine didn't line up, and I and so I just remained Southern Baptist. <laughs> but there's another element of family too that applies to both our biological families and our church family, and that you know God's providence places us in our family, uh, in our biological family. We don't get to choose our family um, that we're born into, and yes, there comes a time for separation in this function and abuse. But for the most part, the difficulties that we have are part of God's providence for us because he gave us those families. And I think the same uh, is largely true of church families. Um, we, we are born into, most of us, not all of us, but we're born into some sort of a tradition or become part of a tradition. And yes, there are reasons to leave it, but wherever you go, um, there you are and there will people be and there will be more problems. And so um, I think maybe part of the part of the answer, not the entire answer, part of the answer is to ask how God's providence has played in placing you in this place that you wouldn't have ne- necessarily picked yourself. I mean, my whole life is a, is the story of God putting me in places that I wouldn't have picked myself. And so I finally just kind of gave up and said, okay, God, whatever, wherever you put me, because I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm picking different things that aren't, I know aren't as wise, even though they seem that way. So looking to God's providence and asking, seeking how his providential hand might work in 
the, the way that he has placed you in this time and this culture and among these people. I think that's very a very powerful way of looking at it. Evangelicalism is made up of multiple denominations and people who don't affiliate with any denomination, and it has a very strong populist and charismatic in terms of people's personality component to it. And often you don't you don't have a lot of control about who is going to speak for you at any given time. And I think I almost feel like when talking about that family member thing, that almost increases everybody's exasperation on this, right? Because the spokespeople, some of them who want to be spokespeople and some of them who don't care, just much more diverse and (laughs) uncontrollable. It's not like all these people just go to your church. Yeah, uh, the debate about what, what is evangelical and who who counts and who gets to speak for it is, you know, uh, an age old fun thing that CT keeps get, getting dragged it's into. Part of lots of movements. It honestly. is. It's every every movement, sure. And actually, uh, I will strongly recommend Karen's uh, chapter in this book that's coming out. Still evangelical. The things that people are upset about, they should be upset about. But if they really turn to anything other than to Jesus and the Bible, I do think it's going to fall apart. That's going to be a flaw solution. And so the fact uh, that evangelicalism is very centered on Jesus, his work on the cross, our own personal need for conversion, uh, the ongoing work of the Spirit, and our own need to actually do something about the faith that we believe, those being kind of the center of the evangelical movement. I mean, I think that's the answer to rot in the church. I think that's the answer to disillusionment with humans. I think that's the answer to to our brokenness. I have seen people turn to other things, and I just think it's it's not gonna it's not gonna solve the problem. But I do definitely understand the frustration that the people who should know what the Bible teaches and should be bearing good fruit from their conversion. Yeah, that I think the Bible keeps. If there's one thing that you you can't you read the Bible and you keep finding is that people keep messing up like people do repent and they keep coming back keep coming back to their vomit well thank you both for a really thoughtful discussion about this challenging issue like to remind everyone that you can give us feedback about this on twitter at ct podcasts now is the segment that we call slow to speak which is when we read commentary from you guys that you had and feedback that you had about the previous show So last week, you may recall that we talked about the Second Amendment and guns. We did an episode called The Christian History of America's Guns. And I know I really enjoyed this episode, and thank you to everyone who listened to it. I wanted to read two tweets that were from folks that I know have listened to the show for quite a while. And they in particular just felt that we could have nuanced the conversation a little bit more when it came to race. So this is a tweet from Wordtropolis. And Wordtropolis wrote, During the latest episode about guns, I kept shouting white during every poll mention of evangelicals. And I was riding my bike while listening, so this was embarrassing. (laughs) Thank you, Wordtropolis, for your commitment to accuracy while exercising. And another listener, Bob Gall, tweeted, Today, I really enjoyed the conversation about the relationship between evangelicals and guns on Quick to Listen. Struck me that evangelicals were assumed to be white. The narrative might be different for non-white evangelicals. I ended up replying to Bob, but I'll just kind of say briefly what I told him, which is, yes, I agree. And I would also be interested as well. I think that many of us know that when it's come to minorities having guns, it's been a different conversation. And Ted and I had actually talked about the Black Panthers owning guns um, back in the 1960s and 1970s, kind of changed the way that 
Americans and the NRA got involved in the topic. Yeah. If you listen to podcasts, you're listening to this one. The More Perfect episode on guns is really interesting on that. Uh, also, uh, a resource that we looked at for that episode uh, from the Journal of the Scientific Study of Religion. I unfortunately don't have that article in front of me today. We'll link it on the We can page. link it. Um, does look does have some data on uh, black evangelical um, gun ownership. Um, and it was... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure I was reading it right, but I do remember being surprised that it was as high as it was. Maybe it'll even be a piece that we do later. Yeah, it sounds that'd like be interesting. There's interest for it. So thank you, everyone, for the feedback. We really appreciate it. Okay, now is the part of the show that we call Precious Moments. Precious Moments is when people share something that is bringing them joy this week. Ted, do you want to go first? Sure. Uh, I am really looking forward to Thanksgiving. My parents are coming into town, and we are going to play... My parents gave me my love for board games, so we're going to play board games like crazy for a week, and it will be lovely. So looking forward to that. And also, I get to see my son's first uh, concert, you know, one of those, uh, you know, grade school. He's been playing uh, the viola for a month, and, uh, you know, so... It's <laughs> great. Those are those are always fun, you know, you, just to see that those first steps of love of music. So that'll be that'll be good. And you're on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Ted Olson. That's Olson with an E O L S E N. Cool. Karen. Well, this week, I, I the first thing that comes to mind when you ask what's brought me joy this week um, is, is my students. I have some fantastic, really bright and engaging students. And when I walk into the class with ready to teach a great work of literature and I have to do almost nothing because they are asking good questions, making great observations, thinking of things that I never thought of. It just, um, it just gives me great joy. And I, I love, I love what I do. And uh, my students are fantastic. They give me a lot of joy. Awesome. Are you teaching any class in particular that is your favorite that you wouldn't mind telling us? Well, um, well, that would be unfair to the other one. Well, but <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> no, they won't I, listen to this podcast. Well, uh, two classes that I have this semester are just amazing. My women's literature class, um, and we've been discussing Kate Chopin's The Awakening uh, this week. And before that, it was uh, Charlotte Bronte's Jane Eyre. And they have just been so engaged with those wonderful texts. And then uh, a graduate course in Christian poetics. And we've been reading um, about literary aesthetics this week. And it's just wonderful material and great students engaging with it. So those are my two favorites. And what's your Twitter handle, Karen? It is KS Prior, as in uh, K-S-P-R-I-O-R. Awesome. Okay, I'm going to actually start by sharing a not precious moment because I'm annoyed about it. But my bike got stolen last night. Oh, that no. is a bummer. Which it was I don't a, have a it car. It was a good bike. It was a nice bike. I finally oh. spent money earlier this year and bought a nice bike. So that was disappointing. So your precious moment can be you're going to get a really cool new bike. Well, my silver lining for that is the fact that it was not the correct size for me. And it was hurting my body. And I was ignoring my body. So I am, un am annoyed that it took my bike getting stolen to fix that. But also it is easier to replace a bike than your shoulders. So <laughs> I think that's okay. So this is a moment about something that was precious to you more than the moment itself being precious. I kind of just wanted to share that. Yeah. But actually my real precious moment is that I got to be on All Things Considered this week to talk about the issue that we talked about here and that was very exciting because I listened to All Things I Considered. I heard you. You were amazing. Thank you. I appreciate that, Karen. I 
am still learning the art of being sound clipped, which mm-hmm. is something else. Right. Props to everyone who has come on the show and let me do a sound clip about them that I use as a quote card. <laughs> <laughs> so I have new regard, as always, when you do a new experience and you're like, wow, this takes a different skill set than I thought it did. So I will also post that in our show notes if people want to listen to that as well. It also features our former co quick to listen co-host Caitlin Beatty and former guests Ed Stetzer you can hear as many quick to listen people if you listen to the segment all right that is it for us this week I guess I didn't share my Twitter handle I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L thank you for everyone who listens thank you for everyone who subscribes again you can subscribe to the magazine at orderct.com slash quick to listen and if you subscribe now you'll get our December issue Thank you to everyone who's left a lot of reviews on Apple Podcasts. We really appreciate everything kind that you guys have said. And when you have pushed back and given us critique, we appreciate that as well. So thank you so much. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, Curry Allred. They are awesome. And you can get this wherever you get your podcasts. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.